0: Father, we come to you with a grateful heart, knowing that you uh, have communicated yourself to us, that you've spoken through this, your word, and we ask that you would illuminate our hearts and minds, and not just do that, but transform them more into the image of Jesus, we pray in his name, amen. Well, we've been now, officially now, on this Sunday, a full year in the book of Genesis, Uh, We began with the life of Abraham, and we've just been working our way through each of these patriarchs, Um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now we're looking at Jacob's children, his sons, and and, and you'll remember that Joseph was sold as a slave through a stunning turn of events, rises to power in Egypt, the, the, the power of the whole world, the power hub for all the world, and his brothers come to him. And through uh, lots of what we call the ruse of grace, he reveals himself to his brothers. And we're now seeing the aftermath of that incredible revelation of Joseph to his brothers. I'm Joseph, the one you sold into slavery, and I'm now the king of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. And so this is the aftermath. Now, last week, we we, we talked about how the way Joseph revealed himself was in weakness. He lost all control, and he was weeping. Tears, snot pouring down his face. It, it was ugly crying. It wasn't just a just trickle. He's out of control, weeping. And remember what Walter Brueggemann said regarding that. The power to create newness comes not by way of detachment, but by risky, self-disclosing engagement. If you want to create newness in your life, if Joseph wants to create newness, it doesn't come from staying detached, huddled, hiding behind the power of Egypt, hiding behind a mask. It comes as he reveals himself, discloses himself by coming near them in weakness. And we saw last week on the other side of that revelation was reward, resurrection, refuge, And now the family of faith is making their way. The brothers have returned from Egypt. They've told Jacob what happened. And now they're making their way as a family, all the sons, all the kids, 70 in all. They're making their way to Egypt. And what we're going to see when they get there is a sweet reunion, three things that I'm going to mention. Sweet reunion, a modest request, and a powerful blessing. Sweet reunion, modest requests, and powerful blessing. Now, it's really hard to believe in what you cannot see. Jacob, remember, it's been 20-something years, and Jacob is told that his son Joseph is still alive. Jacob has thought for the last two decades plus that his son was dead, that a wild beast killed him. And now all of a sudden, all, all, all of that has changed. Your son is alive, but he's yet to see Joseph. You can imagine he's probably having difficulty at times believing that it's actually true, that his son Joseph really is alive. Have you ever had a promise that was so sweet, it's hard to believe it was even true? That's that's what Jacob is dealing with. And, And that's actually what we all deal with as Christians. This is part of our central task as a church The promises of God to us in Christ, in his gospel, are difficult to believe, hard for us to get into our hearts and to begin like operating out of them. And so we come week in and week out to simply remind ourselves of these promises and to speak to the word speaks to us, the song, the sacraments. They tell us it's real. The promises are real. The promises are real. And so Jacob's dealing with that. And look at who's leading the journey to Egypt. Look at verse 28. Jacob sends Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. Judah, again, I can't get enough of this, of Judah, the character, and every week we talk about him, but he's worth talking about because a complete transformation has happened in Judah. Judah. Judah was the one who led the division of the family. Remember, he's the one who sold Joseph. He said, it's my idea. Let's do this. Let's sell him as a slave. That was Judah's leadership 20 plus years ago. And here he is leading the family in reunion, not division. It's a complete 180 from where he was. And this faith of ours that we believe in, we believe people can change. That's a, that's a claim central to Christianity, that people can change, redemption is possible, but again, this too is hard to believe, isn't it, that we can actually change, that people have, that, that people can change, And I would say, apart from revelation it's almost impossible to believe. If you look at kind of the ancient world, they, they, they place so much emphasis on fate that things were not changed, things were locked in and. And, and think about this. The Greeks, they had the belief that there were three old elderly women who were just sewing up in the cosmos, sewing up the fate of all humanity. And there, there were three others. There was clotho, which is where we get our word clothes, spinner. There was lachesis, a lotter of fates. And then listen to this one atropos, which meant inflexible, right? This is how the gods were. This is how fate worked. It worked inflexibly. So you have. You know, a set of characteristics. You have you, you have what you're working on. But there's no, there's no real changing possible. The scripture lands into planet Earth, the revelation of God, like a bomb. And it says, people can change. People can change. And we've seen it throughout. But we've seen it particularly with Judah. It's been slow. It's been subtle. And, and here's the thing, too. We're getting a highlight reel of this family. I mean, we're talking decades and centuries that we've just been moving through kind of at a clip. And it's even when you speed it up, speed the history up, and you give a highlight reel, it's still slow and subtle to see Judas change. But it's there. It's there. He goes from selling his brother as a slave to raising wicked children and marrying a Canaanite woman to sleeping with his own daughter-in-law, who he believes to be a prostitute. And then there's the conviction of sin that follows that. And from that point forward, Judah has been changed. And here he is again, a changed man, leading the family in this uh, glorious reunion. We get changed too. It's hard for us to believe, but it happens. God promises it. He says it's it's actually like inevitable. You will change when God gets a hold of you. You will change. You're actually a changed person right now. But one of the difficulties we have with it is you can't really see change. We've got I've got kids, some teens, some at one point they were babies. When they're babies and when they're teenagers, they're growing at an incredibly fast pace. But I've never seen them grow. I've never been looking at their ear. Looking for it to get larger, it doesn't. That doesn't happen. It's not fast enough. Or, or think about. Let's think about my yard. It's 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 still growing like very quickly. There's no barely any rain. We're just kind of keeping it alive with the sprinkler. The sun is scorching it every day, and yet every week I have the need to mow. Even actually within a week I have to mow. Not even every seven days. Now, if I go out and look at it really closely, will I see the grass blades growing? No, even the fastest growth is hard to see. And so it is with spiritual growth. We can't see it, which is why we often don't believe in it. We have trouble believing in things we can't see. But it's real. Change happens. And that's the testimony of these scriptures. And so Judah is leading the way. He's a changed man. He's leading the way to to reunion of the family and as they approach, we see that Joseph can't contain the excitement. Look at verse 29. Rather than waiting, Joseph prepared his chariot. He went up to meet Israel, Jacob, his father, in Goshen, right? He, he just can't wait. He can't wait for them to arrive. He's like a little kid that grandparents are coming, so he packs up his chariot and he goes out to meet and ver- and, and them. Um, and then it says that, verse 29, he presented himself to him, he fell on his neck, and he wept. For a good while, both Joseph and Jacob, you know they dreamed of seeing each other again. And did they think it could happen? Did they think it would ever happen? Probably not. Jacob is special. Jacob believes Joseph's dead. He's not thinking that it's even possible, even though he's dreaming it, right? And Joseph, likewise, likely did not believe this would ever happen. But look at what God does. God makes the impossible happen. This family has experienced Jacob's experienced, we said it last week, resurrection, a figurative resurrection, much like his father Abraham before him. And now he's he's been reunited with this son that he's missed for decades. And what our faith teaches us is that this kind of reunion is not just a possibility, it's an inevitability, right? It's going to happen, the resurrection of, of all creation will, will will all of creation will burst forth in resurrection power. And tears of sorrow will be replaced by tears of joy. This reunion right here is a little picture of the gospel, of our reunion with our Heavenly Father, which opens up a reunion with all things, right? A, a little like R E dash union, a reunification of all things in Christ. Once our relationship with our heavenly father is restored, all, all of creation will be restored in fullness and in harmony, interlocking harmony. And those who are dead, lost loved ones that we miss, just like Jacob missed Joseph, we'll, we'll, be, re, we'll be reunited with them. The resurrection of the dead we're getting here, at the close of Genesis, a little micro story of the whole gospel. And we're going to come back to that. But now let's, So that's, that's the sweet reunion that happens between uh, uh, Joseph and Jacob, his father. Now the second point is the modest request. Look at verse 31. Joseph, now speaking to his brother, says to, to the brothers, the, the father's household, all the family... He says, I will go up and I will tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. The men are shepherds, for they've been keepers of livestock and they've brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. And when Pharaoh calls you and and says to you, what's your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now. And keepers of livestock refers to sheep and goats, not cattle, flocks. But we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is is an abomination to the Egyptians. So Jacob has a couple of requests. Uh, I'm sorry, Joseph has. He says, he says, when you meet with the Pharaoh, tell him we're shepherds and we want to stay that way. Right? That's our vocation. And he says too, it's an abomination to the Egyptians. Like, they don't, they don't like shepherds. Um, now, a couple of things to know. So, so there's, there's, there's the request of vocational kind of stability. We want to keep being shepherds. And then also geographical placement, right? Where, where are we? Where do we want to live? So first, I want to consider the vocations here in this modest request. The first is a vocational request that we want to do what our fathers have done. We want to do what we um, have been doing. Somebody, someone said that it's, it takes generations to build a career. Generations, not just, you know, a lot of education and training. It takes generations. Their fathers and, and his father, they've been doing shepherding for a long time. Their babies, when they come out of the womb, they have shepherd staffs in their hands. It's in their blood. It's who they are. And Joseph says, don't, don't deny it. Be who you are. Be who God has made you in in your uh, sojournings as pilgrims. Now, he says it's an abomination, right? The Egyptians think that that shepherding is dirty, it's backwards, their shepherds are dumb, they're unrefined, this family comes in, big family. And they've got, they, they smell like sheep. They've got beards that kind of almost remind them of the goats that they have with them. They've got these long cloaks. They're, they're, they're sticking out and not in a good way as they make their way to Egypt. And Joseph says, embrace it. Be who God has made you in the land of, your, in the land of promise. I don't know if you realize this, but pastors used to be kind of a big deal a long time ago. <laughs> there, uh, th- David Wells has written about this in a book called No Place for Truth, just how pastors were very important figures in life, almost like purveyors of culture. And now not so much, right? I mean, it's, it's funny. When, when I shifted from being a school administrator to being a pastor, there's always kind of like a little hesitancy when somebody says, what do you do? Because you know there's going to be a myriad of reactions. They don't know how to respond to it. Oh, you know, some people are like, what a waste of time. And then some people will mention that, you know, my great-grandpa went to church, I think, you know, trying to kind of make a little point of connection. Um, They don't know how to respond. And we don't really know what to do with us, our culture, right? I mean, when was the last time you saw a pastor in a a movie or television show? If they weren't slimy and corrupt, they were like Barney Fife-level competent, you know, sort of bumbling, fumbling buffoons. I think of Paul McCartney in the 1960s in, in uh, one of their most famous, song, Beatles' most famous songs, Eleanor Rigby, um, sings of all the lonely people. And one of them is Father McKenzie, who's writing the words to a sermon that no one will hear. Isn't that sad? Lonely. That's the pastor represents that, the Beatles believed. And that's kind of where we are. Now, here's the thing, though. I'm not like lamenting this at all. This is wh- it's where we belong, I believe. The more marginalized the minister gets, so be it. Totally fine. Probably better for us anyway, right? To be on the margin, to be humble fools for Christ, humble fools in the eyes of the world. Embrace it. Maybe you have a vocation and you're thinking to yourself, I I wanted to be this and I'm not. And I'm kind of disappointed in where where, where I am, where I am vocationally. Embrace it. Here's the thing about Christianity has a very high view of work, all work. Contrast again with the Greeks who believed that work was like, that was slave. That's what the slaves did. The real goal in life was to avoid work at all possible and live the life of leisure. That was the objective. But Christianity says, no, God built the world through a labor of love. It was work that built the world. We serve a working God. And there's no work too great, too small for any human being, so long as it loves neighbor, right? There are some jobs that are just inherently problematic. Illegal drug dealing would probably be one that comes to mind. But if you're loving your neighbor, there's no work too small. Work has value. And Christ demonstrated this when he came and lived and learned the trade of a carpenter and spent most of his adult life being a carpenter, All work is valuable, and Joseph wants them to remember that. And so he says, lead with the abomination. Don't be afraid. Tell the Pharaoh who you are as shepherds. And let's keep reading in the the passage here. So they go in, the brothers and and the family goes to Pharaoh, chapter 47, verse 1, Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They're now in the land of Goshen. From among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land, for there's no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and brothers in the, best, in the best land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. I've got... Come to think of it, I've got some cattle that need some tending to. If they could tend to those out there, that'd be great, Pharaoh says. "But Do you see the humility? They've got got their foot in the door of Egyptian power. I mean, Judah, great candidate for Joseph's chief of staff, right? I mean, they they could all find themselves right there in in, in the halls of power of the whole world. And they say, we want to be shepherds. We want to tend to our sheep. We don't need much. And, and and that they have this request of placement. And where they want to actually be placed is the land of Goshen. It's not clear exactly where it is, um, but it it's basically it's basically grass. <laughs> That's what they want. They want grass, they want land where their their livestock can feed. And I think there's something for us to be gleaned here. They're not home, and even when they were home in the land of promise, they're living as sojourners. And now here they are in Egypt outside the land of promise, they're living as sojourners. Os Guinness, decades ago, uh, said that we live in an ABC era, and what, he, and what he meant by that was we live in an anything but Christian era. Our, our age, America and the West more generally, we kind of we're down with anything but christianity we don't like christianity we've been there done that we don't need any more of that but we'll flirt around with other religions and kind of dabble here and there we'll be open to those things but christianity psh, we're done and so one of the questions that's come up and is much discussed and i think rightfully so is how do we relate to the culture around us it's a really important question how do we relate I think there may be a little something to be gleaned here. The, the, the brothers come and they say, All we want is land. We're not coming for a takeover of Egypt. We are operating on a different plane with different priorities. And I think this can be a model for us. Christian, we, we rightly feel as though the world is slipping away. And I think a lot of Christians, you'll hear um, a panic in their voice a nervousness, and I, I actually, not just about a year ago, met with a bunch of Christian men that were just ran into them, they were talking, and we got to talking, and there was a lot of nervousness about where the country was going, where things were heading, and I, I wonder if they hadn't forgotten what Peter says to the church that he's writing to in First Peter. He says in chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Walk as sojourners and exiles. And I know we hear that and we think, well, yeah, but what if they take, what if they take our tax exempt status away? We keep giving and we keep worshiping. What if they take our religious liberty away? Well, we keep gathering and we keep worshiping. What if they, what if they take our lives? Praise be to God. Right to live is Christ, to die is gain. And I'm not. not I'm not. And I want to. I want you to hear me. I'm not saying that we run from halls of power and run from stations of influence to the hills. That's not what I'm saying. To the extent that we can influence things, we certainly do. To the extent that we can work towards justice. In our nation, we certainly work towards those things. If God has placed us there, it's a good work. But as I listen to some Christians talk about the country and the nation and where it's going, it seems to me that they've forgotten that God's got this, that God's kingdom will be established. Apart from from our efforts, we're not the ones who bring the kingdom in. It's God and his spirit. And as we get actually, as we get more scooted to the margins of life, if that if that happens, it seems as though that's happening, we can't forget who brings the kingdom in. In fact, to the extent that we get moved to the margins, it's setting up a greater exaltation of God's people in the end. And some of you in this room have been placed in significant and influential positions. And that's praise God and seek to serve those roles faithfully and with with wisdom and with love. But it's important that we don't forget whose and who we are, that God is the rock of our salvation. It's not a job or it's not a political party or it's not even a nation. It's God who's the rock of our salvation. And with that solidly in place, we go out and we serve a political party or a nation or a city or a state or a business with those kingdom priorities intact. Joseph says, remember who you are. We're shepherds. It's an abomination to Egypt. So be it. God's call on us is infinitely greater than what the powers of this world can whip up. Because here's the thing. The great nation of Egypt, right? People still go and visit it today. The the remnants of it are still here. Thousands of years later, we can still go see what they built. But for all the glory and grandeur Guess, guess, guess what? When Paul when, I'm sorry, when John describes the new heavenly city, the New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven and landing on Earth, do you know what he, how he describes the, the, the temple, the city? It has 12 gates, and over the gates are angels hovering, guarding, protecting. And you know whose names are on each of the gates? Reuben, Simeon, Levi. The marginal abomination to the Egyptian shepherds are the ones who are ruling the world in God's kingdom. That's how this works. That's where this is moving. We can't lose sight of that. We can't can't lose sight of that. Let's move to the final point, the powerful blessing. So look at verse 7. So Joseph brought Jacob, his father, to the pharaoh. And, and Jacob blessed the Pharaoh. This 130-year-old patriarch is meeting the king of the age. And Joseph is, is literally, like, helping him walk. He's been carried the whole way. Like, he can barely move. He still has the limp from wrestling with God. And he's mo- making his way in. He's an old man. And here he is, old, worn, and tired. And he blesses Pharaoh what God promised to Abraham is happening in a little nugget form right here that the people of Abraham, the children of Abraham, would be a blessing to the nations and would bless the nations. And here's old man Jacob blessing the king of the world, the Pharaoh. And I want us to notice that Jacob is not, he's not powerful. He's not physically, he's not strong. He's old. He's limping. He's handicapped. But, his, but, he's, but he's more powerful than the most powerful man in the world. He's the one blessing the Pharaoh. He's got something that the Pharaoh doesn't have and needs, the blessing of God. And that's because while Jacob doesn't have a good walk, he doesn't have his youth, he doesn't have his strength, he has God. And that makes, that makes the difference. He has God with him. Now, what we've been learning all along in this Joseph story is that God's purposes and promises stand. And I want to come back to this anxiety that we often feel about maybe like where the world is going, where the culture is going, where all these things are happening. We've seen it so, so many times through this Joseph story. There were times where Joseph, there was, there was, it, was, it was an impossibility. The brothers did everything they could do to stamp out the promises of God to make the dream not come true. And the very thing that they were doing was the very means by which the dream became true. And the people in Joseph became the ruler of the world and of his brothers included. Right? You can't stand against the word of God. Let's keep reading. Verse 8, the Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? He looks at him he's like, you're old. <laughs> how old are you? And this is a significant question because the Egyptians are obsessed with death and aging. It's what, they, it's what they were all about. They had their makeup and they had their skin, their shaving, and everything was about youth. We want to look young. We want to look young. We're going to build. And while we're young, all we're going to do is prepare for death. The whole slave force was devoted to building these big tombs, essentially, the pyramids. They're obsessed with death. And so here the Pharaoh sees this old man coming in. How, how old are you and how would you do it? this is what I want. I want long life. And Jacob said, verse nine, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And he's right. Jacob will live to be about 145. He's going to live just more than another, like more than another decade, like 14, 15 years. Isaac died at 180. Abraham died at 175. And then again, verse 10, we read that Jacob blessed Pharaoh, went out from the presence of Pharaoh, and then Joseph settles the family. Now, again, think about it. The book of Genesis, which we've been in for some time, has been setting up. The word literally means beginnings. It's been setting up the story of God, the story that would not take up the the subject matter of the book of Genesis, but the whole Bible. And what God is giving us as he brings the book of Genesis to a close is a little micro story of the macro story that God is orchestrating in our lives throughout all the scriptures and throughout all time. It's the story of the gospel. And it bears repeating again, right? That just as Joseph Jacob's special son was cast aside by his brothers and essentially left for dead. God would send his son, his special son, his one and only son, and his brothers would reject him. They would kill him right on a cross to atone for sin. And by God's power, he would be raised to the right hand, not of the Pharaoh and not over the kingdom of Egypt, but to the right hand of God where he will rule and reign over all creation. And in the meantime, oh, wait, let me say this. Just as Joseph is distributing salvation, physical salvation, in the form of food during a famine, Christ is exalted and by his spirit is plucking up people from all across the globe, from his own family, from the, from the Jews, the people of God, but from all the nations. And he's drawing them to himself and he's giving them spiritual food, nourishment. In the meantime, And in the meantime, our call is to live faithfully in the world. Much as the family of faith is here, whether the world's friendly to us, neutral towards us, or hates us, that's our call. And praise God if we can be a blessing to the world. Praise God if we find ourselves in stations and, and settings and posts where we can enact and influence change in light of the kingdom of God. Praise God. Seek that if you're there. But if things go badly, don't sweat it. God's got this. He's demonstrated time and time again that it's those on the margins who will be exalted, that will rule, that will have their names etched on the throne of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your promises. Help us to live our lives more in light of them. Impress them deeper into our hearts, into our heads, and into every fiber of who we are. We pray that we would live in light of them, acting graciously, generously, lovingly, truthfully, just as you did in your time on earth. Make us more into the image of Christ, we pray in his name. Amen.